Tyler. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome to the show Gregory Mitchell, who is an associate professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Williams College. He has a new book, Panics Without Borders, How Global Sporting Events Drive Myths About Sex Trafficking. And we thought it would be particularly interesting to have Professor Mitchell with us on today in view of our being in the middle of the World Cup. So, Gregory Mitchell, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time, and I appreciate your book. And let me bring our listeners into the conversation we were having just before we went on the air. And I did ask you, I said, you are a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies, Gregory Mitchell. Uh, and how do students, when they walk into your class for the first day and see Gregory Mitchell as the professor of women's gender and sexuality studies, uh, what's the reaction to you? Well, it depends on the class, I think. If it's uh, the Intro to Women's Studies or if it's uh, this course that I teach on sexual economies and sex worker rights, they're a little surprised to see a man uh, up at the podium. But, uh, of course, gender and sexuality includes all sorts of other things. So uh, it's a little bit different than when they walk into my masculinity and pop culture class or um, uh, I, I taught a new course on gay male subcultures, and so uh, it's a little less surprising to them there, but uh, they they definitely can take a second glance sometimes. I, I thought it might be interesting for our listeners to uh, hear a bit about who you are, and it was one of the questions I wanted to ask you, how you became involved in these studies and writing these books about uh, sexuality and sex work. Uh, and you do answer that in part, uh, and I'm looking at page 18 of your book. Again, the title is Panics Without Borders, and I'm wondering if you'd be kind enough to read that to us. I think it will answer some questions, and I think it will give our listeners a sense of what the book sounds like, which I always like to do. Sure. I never intended to study sex work. I grew up gay in a rural Midwestern town raised in a broken and violent home by working class parents who had not attended university. I had no idea what professors did or that research on such a thing even existed. I managed to eat in elementary school because my siblings and I qualified for free lunch. When I was a teen, we lost our home to traffickers, or to traffickers, to foreclosure. Uh, I joined so many extracurricular activities and worked so many hours at the local library that I would leave school for six at six o'clock in the morning and often not get home until 10 o'clock at night, thus staying out of the house. I realized that there was a thing known as white trash and that my grandmother was a little too quick in assuring me that no matter what other kids said, we were not that. Spoiler alert, we were. I desperately wanted to escape and uh, to escape the cornfields and trailer parks that surrounded me. And that meant college. I applied to one school, Illinois State University, and was able to attend using Pell Grants back when Pell Grants were meaningful enough to make that possible. I also worked part-time at the Career Center and at the cafe inside the Barnes & Noble. I lied about my sexual history with men so that I could sell my plasma twice a week at a for-profit clinic. I took as many as seven classes a semester because anything over five classes 
was gratis. I studied theater and my friends and I sometimes fantasized about starting a theater company one day. If someone had told me then that I would one day move to Brazil, learn Portuguese, befriend and live among prostitutes there, and then travel the world writing about sex worker rights, I would surely have thought them mad. You did move to Brazil. You spent about half your year in Brazil. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I've been going to Brazil since 2006. So cumulatively, there's, if I'm there three months a year, I figure at some point I've spent several years <laughs> down there. Well, let me ask you this, because there is a something in the beginning of your book that I said, yes, exactly right. That's exactly what I was thinking. And when I first saw the title of the book, Panics Without Borders, How Global Sporting Events Drive, drive Myths About Sex Trafficking, I said, well, it's, it's the World Cup. I wonder how uh, all what must be in a huge market in sex trafficking for these uh, world sporting events or worldwide sporting events uh, uh, – how that's going to work out in Qatar or Qatar. And I don't know, I don't know. That might be a little more difficult for uh, the, those who would exploit these women in that, that country. But that certainly this is something that happens all the time in huge numbers. And yet you make the argument in your book, Panics Without Borders, that there is an enormous mythology around sex workers and these enormous uh, sporting events with worldwide attention. Tell us what your research shows. So uh, beginning with research in uh, the World Cup in Brazil uh, and then uh, the Summer Olympic Games in Brazil just two years after that gave me a real opportunity to do a long-term study and to get real uh, data gathering numbers of um, clients, of prices, of nationalities, um, of whether the women uh, were experienced sex workers, if they were working with pimps or third parties, etc. And so I uh, began a collaboration um, with a number of other colleagues from various countries. Um, and we got a five-year charter at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro to study exactly that. Um, mapping out uh, roughly 270 commercial sex venues in the city of Rio de Janeiro um, and having, you know, visiting all of those um, and then focusing in on about 70 of them that were a little more prominent and then examining what happened in terms of, of business levels. And what we found was actually that not only did prostitution um, not increase, uh, but we found that it uh, went down in most of those venues. And it went whoa, down. Whoa, whoa, wait a second. Wait a second. You have a lot of people showing up, and probably, mm-hmm. I, I just, uh, this is a guess. I don't know why I think this. A lot of single mm-hmm. men showing up, um, and a lot of uh, uh, straight men looking for, I don't know, they're, they're mm-hmm. out, out of homes or out of their uh, s- safe zones, and they can do things that they might not otherwise do. And you would mm-hmm. think that those would be hotbeds, bad word, um, of uh, sexual exploitation and prostitution and the like. And the number, this, this uh, 40,000 uh, girls and women being uh, commandeered into sex work for these events, that, that's something a number I've heard before. And you say, again, not true. So 
and I, and you have this phrase in your book for that number, this this phantom statistic, this zombie statistic. Right. Um, tell us a bit more about that, because I, I was really surprised to read your conclusions. Sure. Um, so before I read that uh, section on the the phantom numbers and zombie statistics, I'll just say that yes, it it seems. Uh, intuitive. And part of what led me into this uh, is that I had already been working in Brazil uh, on questions related to male sex workers. And once we knew that the World Cup was coming, I began to see an intense amount of police violence, of seeing an increase in police raids of commercial sex venues, which are legal in, in Brazil. So um, uh, to see the police go in and then to learn that the raids were so violent and they were beating the women, they were raping the women. And it was all being done to clear out the areas where all of the um, FIFA, uh, you know, jumbotron screens and things like that were. And so it became very clear they're doing these raids and they're saying that they're looking for trafficking um, or that they're doing the raids to stop some kind of exploitation that's there. Um, but in reality, what was happening was that they were cleaning things up before a company came to town. And it also meant that um, they were able to grab very valuable land back <laughs> that was prime seafront uh, places to that the business community would want to develop. Uh, and so the sex workers became this sort of collateral damage in this fight against sex trafficking. And then uh, when we looked at the numbers, we found almost no cases of sex trafficking and certainly nothing that was related to uh, the cup itself. Um, well, but I can... well, let me ask you this, um, because I, I do want you to share with our listeners uh, what you have found about how this uh, untruth about uh, sex mm -hmm. trafficking in these world sporting events and, and what the relationship is, how this, these myths are perpetuated. But I think before we do that, let me, let me ask you about this sentence or two in your book. You say, I do not contend that sex trafficking doesn't exist, but I do think the anti-trafficking movement has made the term itself so intentionally meaningless that scholars and serious activists need new frameworks for studying and understanding the confluence of sexual exploitation and migration. So what do you mean and what should be meant by the term uh, sex trafficking and how pernicious and widespread of a uh, problem is it? I think it's important to understand when we talk about the term sex trafficking that what we're really working on uh, there, the anti-sex trafficking movement begins as um, a panic known as the white slave trade panic uh, in the late 19 or uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, all of this sort of muckraking yellow journalists are fomenting fear about immigrant men, um, uh, mostly Asians or. Um, Catholics, uh, and there's this idea that all of these good white women are being seduced and abducted out of ice cream parlors and candy stores and so forth, um, and being sold into sexual slavery. And this results in uh, the passage of the Mann Act or the White Slave Trade Act. Uh, so this is a, a long running um, 
idea and panic. And when we're dealing with something that's 130 years old, um, you're going to have different people doing different things uh, with that term, with that discourse. And so we get uh, what's sometimes called um, a definitional creep or exploitation creep. So uh, when one government entity or agency wants to talk about it, they're thinking of it as moving someone from from point A to point B, um, typically across some kind of border um, for uh, sexual commercial purposes or sexual exploitation. And then that gets expanded because a lot of the evangelical groups and the anti-prostitution um, radical feminist groups uh, will say that one cannot consent to self-sex meaningfully, uh, and therefore all sex uh, happening within the context of prostitution uh, is rape and therefore is sex trafficking. And so we get these really different numbers because if you believe that sex work is different than sex trafficking, you're going to have a very, very different number than if you believe that it's one and the same. What about so, what about what about young women, girls, uh, teenage uh, being uh, uh, essentially kidnapped and brought to different countries, uh, including the United States. We certainly read these stories. Uh, isn't, that, isn't that real? Doesn't that happen? Isn't there a international sex trafficking cabal or cabals that in fact do this and exploit these young women and girls in this way? I think what we see on the part of the anti-trafficking organizations are cases like what you're describing, uh, because those are the quote-unquote perfect victim cases. Um, that is a lot more clean cut uh, and easily recognizable than um, what happens more commonly, uh, which is that there are networks, no networks, oftentimes family members bringing another family member, bringing a younger sister, for example, um, or a child across the border um, and uh, either luring them in or many times they know that they're going to be um, selling sex. They don't necessarily know how bad the conditions will be or that they won't be able um, to get out, um, but it's not as if you know, there's a secret organization running around kidnapping children out of, you know, Walmart parking lots and chaining them to radiators. It's a lot more complicated patterns of um, migration and coercion and um, people who are using sex as just one thing uh, as part of making do to get by, right? They're not professionalized as full-time sex workers, they probably wouldn't even use that word. Um, but if you're struggling to come into another country, um, you know, a lot of people will um, do what they need to do. But very often uh, what happens is that when we, we see cases presented in the media, it's really difficult to start talking about, well, these women were selling sex and they knew they were going to sell sex, but they didn't know that it was going to have debt bondage and exploitation. Uh, and so it's just a lot easier to, you know, say, here is Maria and Maria was a good girl. And one day a bad man came to the village and offered her a, a job. Um, sure, that is 
possible, but that is a very neat narrative that's better for fundraising and, and so forth. We're speaking with Gregory Mitchell, professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Williams College. His new book, Panics Without Borders, How Global Sporting Events Drive Myths About Sex Trafficking. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back, and I have a question for him about the Salvation Army. We're going to be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts way of saying, we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families. And we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 101.5, 1400 and 12.40. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. I'm Tony Warden, President and Chief Executive Officer of Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I want to wish everyone a happy holiday season and a safe and healthy new year. This is Mary Ross of the Co-op Bank, wishing all our customers, my family and friends, a very happy and joyful holiday season. This is Chelsea. And this is Maggie. From the Commercial Loan Department. We want to wish our family, friends and customers a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Hi, this is Jane Wolf, Senior Vice President of Residential Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I'd like to wish you and your family a wonderful holiday season and a prosperous new year. Hi, this is Missy Tatro, Assistant Vice President and Senior Mortgage Originator at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I'd like to wish everyone a safe and happy holiday season. Hi, I'm Dawn. And I'm Erica from the Florence Branch of Northampton Cooperative Bank. We, we would, would like, like to extend our best wishes to our customers, families, and friends for a happy holiday season and a happy new year. Cheers. In this the season of thanks and giving, United Way of Franklin and Hampshire Region wants to remind you to support the organizations and people who are doing the hard work of making our community a better place. Please consider supporting a local nonprofit with a tax-deductible gift this December. If you're not sure how to help, go to uw-fh.org to find a list of United Way vetted partner agencies. The United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire Region asks you to help make the Valley a happier, healthier, and more equitable place for everyone. Hi, this is Dr. Jenny Garber, former college athlete and now arthroscopic and shoulder surgeon at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. I'm proud to be one of the board-certified team of doctors who's ready to tackle any orthopedic or sports injury, from shoulders and elbows to knees and ankles and everything in between. With convenient locations in Springfield, East Longmeadow, and Northampton, you can trust we'll give you the best bona fide care. So visit anyortho.com to schedule your appointment today, because at New England Orthopedic Surgeons, we help get you back in the game. This week's Shop Tuesday is Berkshire East. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Berkshire East Resort releases certificates for their lift tickets in Charlemont. Enjoy great skiing and riding close to home. With massive upgrades and 100% snowmaking coverage, they're ready to provide an awesome skiing experience every time you visit. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Berkshire East Resort in Charlemont. Available this Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Gregory Mitchell, who is a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Williams College. His new book is Panics Without Borders, How Global Sporting Events Drive Myths About Sex Trafficking. We were talking in the first segment about this zombie number of 
40,000, there are 40,000 women and girls who are going to be exploited and imported to these world uh, world sporting events, uh, including the World Cup, the Olympics, and so on. And you have a section you specifically address that in your book. And again, to give our listeners some sense of what the book sounds like, perhaps you could share that with us, if you would kindly, please, Professor Gregory Mitchell. Sure. Thank you. Well-funded evangelical groups such as the Salvation Army, which most people know only as charitable bell ringers, but which also operate as a powerful and well-funded evangelical anti-gay political lobby and moral crusader on a number of issues, took out massive advertisements warning of the dangers of sex trafficking and global sporting events, including the South African World Cup. Likewise, the Protestant Church of Germany and the German Women's Council had taken a similar approach when Germany hosted the World Cup, where the media ran sensationalistic stories about sex shacks and mega brothels that would be needed to meet the demand. The South Africa Drug Authority warned that, quote, a billion condoms may not be enough, and Great Britain promptly sent 42 million condoms uh, to the former colony for the cup. During the Rio Olympics, organizers gave out 450,000 condoms, uh, specifically to the competitors, which is enough condoms for each athlete to have sex 84 times uh, during the World Cup. In a progressive move, 100,000 um, quote-unquote female condoms were also given, and they gave out 175,000 packets of lube. Local celebrities in South Africa took to television to warn people not to fall prey to traffickers. Graphic media campaigns abounded. Human rights and anti-prostitution activists alike sounded the sex trafficking alarms that uh, South Africa's 500,000 World Cup attendees would cause sex trafficking to skyrocket to 40,000 victims. Similar claims were made in Vancouver, Athens, Berlin, London, and other host cities. Gregory Mitchell, you say that's not true. You say it's not even close. <laughs> no. What What do you think? The uh, are, are there statistics? Are there numbers? Is the I mean, the, the stories that you tell, these horrifying stories we read. I mean, I assume that where there is uh, this kind of uh, coverage, that there is at least some truth to it. So where do you come out on this? Because sex trafficking is horrifying. Uh, at least as the way we, we, we commonly use that term. Um, Absolutely. You also say that it's comparatively rare. Do I understand that correctly? Yeah, well, certainly more rare than you would get um, the sense of from looking at the media. It makes for great um, stories, for uh, movies, for telenovelas, for crime shows, um, uh, for uh, made for TV uh, documentaries, documentaries, that kind of thing. Um, and certainly there's a proliferation of, of discourse about it on TikTok and on Facebook, where there are all sorts of, of um, uh, ideas about people trying to kidnap women in parking lots and so on. Um, so there, there's definitely a lot more fear out there um, than, than there actually needs to be, which is not to say that there is not exploitation um, or that there is not um, sexual exploitation or sexual violence against um, children. Uh, a lot of what we have uh, in, in that realm is actually a lot of LGBTQ 
homeless youth who have been uh, turned away uh, from families or that they have left shelters and they find themselves uh, doing survival sex on streets in cities. Um, and yet a lot of the religious organizations don't want to work with those kids and those kids don't want to work with them. So there is absolutely um, work to be done, but these particular kinds of, of um, hype around using an, an event like the World Cup to say we need a bunch of government money to hire consultants or to hire ourselves as consultants to run all these ads warning people that there's going to be all of this um, sex trafficking that's going to show up and that has to be stopped. Um, also allows police departments to beef up their budgets and to pay themselves overtime. Oftentimes paying yourself overtime to go look for signs of sex trafficking means going and sitting in strip clubs while getting paid that time and a half. Uh, so so it, the anti-trafficking industry um, really has its own set of agendas around, specifically around the, the major sporting events myth. But the sporting events myth has actually been debunked so many times um, before I came along that there's already an entry on Snopes.com, you know, tracking uh, tracking all of this. Sex workers have and, and anti-trafficking groups have done some really good work looking at what the arrests and so forth are actually. So in um, Germany, there was there were a couple of dozen uh, of women arrested in sex trafficking. Um, uh, rings, uh, and then it turned out that they weren't actually trafficking victims, but because they were undocumented, they were deported. Um, the Global Alliance Against Trafficking Women pointed out that um, there were claims made in Texas at their Super Bowl that there would be 50 to 100,000 um, Mexican women and girls sex trafficked over the border um, for their uh, Super Bowl. Um, the FBI then had to admit that they actually had found none, no cases. Um, however, they also, the groups had pointed out 50 to 100,000, that would be enough for every man, woman, and child in the Super Bowl stadium to have their own uh, sex trafficked uh, woman or girl. So the numbers don't even come close to, to adding up. And then it also attaches increasingly to all sorts of events. So a political convention um, is coming to town or a car show or in what I think was probably the silliest example of a moral panic um, attaching itself to these events. There was that eclipse in 2017 that sliced across a, a thin line. And then the attorneys general in Kentucky, um, Nebraska and must have been Wyoming uh, got together and asked for additional funding and started doing um, anti-sex trafficking uh, trainings uh, to stop the sex traffickers because they alleged that they were going to come and traffic, uh, abduct the children in the darkness um, of the eclipse. Uh, and so you can see where this can just really kind of get out of control on how a group like QAnon can come in and take something and just stretch it into, you know, total fabrication. We have been speaking with Gregory Mitchell. Professor Mitchell's new book is Panics Without Borders, How Global Sporting Events Drive Myths About Sex Trafficking. You can get this book at your local and through your local independent bookstore. It's available on eBooks 
and in paper and hardcover as well. Professor Mitchell, thank you for a fascinating book, and thank you for your time this morning. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The residents of Deerfield will be heading back to the polls tomorrow for a special town election. They will be voting on one question, a debt exclusion to fund the Tilton Library renovations. Tuesday's vote will be the final step in approving funding for the project after the special town meeting in October where residents approved the appropriation of $12.3 million for the project. This amount includes a $4 million state grant from the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners that must be matched by the town by January unless an extension is granted. Residents can vote in person at the town hall at 8 Conway Street in Deerfield or by mail. Vote-by-mail ballots must be postmarked by December 6th or returned to the town clerk's office by 8 p.m. on Tuesday. The city of Northampton is executing an option to purchase the former First Baptist Church building as the home for the Community Resilience Hub. The building is located on the corner of Main and West Streets at 289 Main Street. Mayor Gina Louise Sherra made the announcement Friday, saying the search has been exhaustive, but this building is worth the wait. The hub will support residents who face chronic and acute stress, such as those who are homeless, and act as an emergency center if there is a disaster. Wildwood Elementary School in Amherst will be looking for a new principal following an announcement from Nick Yaffe that he's retiring. Yaffe made the announcement to staff in a video where he interacts with Kermit the Frog, saying it was a hard decision, but he'll be stepping down at the end of the school year. Yaffe said he made the decision now after a 30-year career, so the district will have plenty of time to find his replacement. For today, sunshine this morning, then increasing clouds this afternoon. Highs 44 to 48. Tonight, it'll be cloudy. Overnight lows around 30. And the outlook for Tuesday, cloudy and mild chance for rain in the afternoon. Highs in the lower 50s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El expresidente Donald Trump enfrentó la reprimenda el domingo de funcionarios de ambos partidos después de pedir la terminación de partes de la Constitución por su mentira de que las elecciones de 2020 fueron robadas. Trump, quien anunció el mes pasado que se postulará nuevamente para presidente, hizo el reclamo durante el fin de semana en su plataforma de redes sociales Truth. El líder demócrata entrante de la Cámara, Hakeem Jeffries, describió el domingo la declaración de Trump como extraña y extrema y dijo que los republicanos tendrán que elegir si continúan adoptando las opiniones antidemocráticas de Trump. Trump enfrenta investigaciones criminales cada vez más intensas, incluidas varias que podrían conducir a las acusaciones. Incluyen la investigación de documentos clasificados incautados por el FBI en Mar-a-Lago y las investigaciones estatales y federales en curso relacionadas con los esfuerzos para anular los resultados de las elecciones presidenciales de 2020. En otras informaciones, el Comité Selecto de la Cámara que investiga el ataque del 6 de enero en el Capitolio de los Estados Unidos se reunirá el viernes por la mañana a puerta cerrada para tomar una lista crítica de tareas pendientes, incluida la emisión de posibles referencias criminales para el expresidente Trump y otros. Se espera que un subcomité presente sus recomendaciones al panel completo sobre los próximos pasos a considerar para Trump y otros objetivos de la investigación de más de un año. Trump fue citado por el panel en octubre, pero presentó una demanda contra 
contra el panel para bloquear la medida y no cooperó. El representante demócrata de Mississippi, Benny Thompson, quien preside el panel del Comité Selecto de la Cámara, no ha descartado una referencia criminal para Trump u otros. La reunión del viernes se produce cuando el panel está trabajando frenéticamente para cumplir con la fecha límite de este mes de emitir un informe completo de sus hallazgos. Yo soy Johan Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. It's Mayor's Monday here on WHMP, and we have with us in the studio the mayor of Northampton, Jean-Louis Shara. Madam Mayor, thank you so much for being with us. I'd like to start by asking you about the front page story of the Daily Hampshire Gazette, a resilience center. You're close, or the city is close to a resilience center. Tell us the story. Uh, good morning. First of all, good morning. It's good to see both of you again. I got to see you yesterday. I hope we're all still basking in that hot chocolate run glow. Well, let's yeah. spend let's spend one minute to okay. pause and say the hot chocolate run for Safe Passage raised almost eight hundred thousand dollars yesterday. It's amazing. Wow. It is truly, truly remarkable, and it's just it's you know it's just an event. Who doesn't love this event? Right? It's it's a beautiful community event where people come together. We do something remarkable and raise a lot of money for Safe Passage, but it's also just, I think, a fun time when we all celebrate each other in this community and our generosity, and it just feels like kind of a kickoff for the season for me. Yes, good way to start the holiday season yes. with the sense of uh, brotherhood and sisterhood, camaraderie, joy, and community. Yep, there's music, there's costumes. It feels, it's so Northampton. Yeah. Like, as the mayor of Northampton, when you look at that crowd there, do you feel like this is the microcosm of what we are? Yeah, I mean, it's it's why I love this community. It's why I love this job, right? It's, it is. It's a microcosm. It's the generosity again, but it's also that we're quirky and fun and embrace all of, all each other in all of our um, sort of... Uh, eccentricities, but um, all with great love and compassion. Right. We have, there's a five mile walk. And of course there are four people on stilts. Right. <laughs> and that, that was unbelievable. Right. <laughs> to do that entire walk wow. on stilts is unreal. Yeah. I, I uh, yeah. Never in my lifetime is that going to happen for me. <laughs> I'd think about it. <laughs> that, that I definitely believe, Monty. <laughs> okay. With, and for next year's uh, Monty's March, on stilts. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Joe Comerford, the senator, as well as uh, District Attorney Dave Sullivan and others, were plotting that they may do a full Monty team next year where they dress up <laughs> like me. Excellent. Which would be fun. Bald caps and strange outfits. That would be really fun. That wasn't fun. the direction I thought you were going in. So. <laughs> I feel so much better, yeah. don't you? Uh, yes. <laughs> they came up with the name. <laughs> that is awesome. I can't wait for that. Um, but on, okay, so on to other, back to the resilience center. Okay, um, really great news and something that I'm really hopeful and excited about. So first, let's talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about what the resilience hub is because resilience hub. Sorry, hub. Yes. So the concept um, for this and sort of the planning committee for it came out of a working group that former Mayor Narkowitz had put together around houseless folks downtown and um, some of whom were panhandling and um, just to kind of figure out with, including with pretty extensive outreach to that community and interviews, 
what their needs are and you know how what what they felt were the number one priorities for their community and um so a, a working group came together around that and this concept of a resilience hub had been started and was being thought about but then the pandemic really brought sort of into stark relief um, how desperately needed a day center was so that was one of the top things that the that the houseless community said that they needed and then you had the pandemic where suddenly all of the the places that sort of were a patchwork of um, of of locations that filled those needs like the libraries or the cafes and were places where people could go um, during you know, at any time of day, but certainly during hot days when you needed somewhere cool or during the very cold times when people needed to be somewhere during the day. Um, those were suddenly unavailable to people. And so you, we, I think the city and everybody really saw the impact of that. So that kind of um, jump-started the talk of the Resilience Hub into like, we need to move far more quickly on this. Um, and a group came together and um, started working and planning on it. Uh, very sort of... Uh, quickly and, and um, with the goal of moving very quickly. So um, a little bit about what what the hub uh, was envisioned for is sort of for different purposes. One, as I said, was this day center, right, for our frontline vulnerable community members, which would include lockers, showers, laundry, internet access, a place to connect, a place to be, you know, inside out of the elements. Um, so in the meantime, uh, when we've been looking for a hub, we have actually have lockers that were, that's a primary need, right? People have stuff and they need somewhere safe to have their stuff. So um, lockers were uh, procured and, and put into the parking garage, it's sort of, um, and that's where they are now. But we have still been looking for this location that can fill all these other needs for a day center. Um, another, another purpose would be um, a connection hub for services and support. So around, you know, we have all of these amazing social service agencies um, around housing or food security or job seeking or healthcare addiction recovery services, um, legal assistance. It would be a place to kind of aggregate everyone together. So one of the things that we heard is that, yes, there are a lot of services, but getting to all of them and having someone sort of know how to access them was hard. So if we could create a space where all of, where these agencies would come to the people as opposed to the people trying to find those agencies wherever they were in the community. Um, that would be something that we thought would really help people connect with services that they needed. Um, and then the third thing, or the third hope, was as a community space that everyone can access. So it was really important that <clears throat> this feel not just like um, you know a space that is only meant for our um, sort of frontline vulnerable folks, but that this be a space for everybody and that everyone's comfortable there and then that we sort of remove kind of that stigma attached to what this space would be used for. And so, um, and there's always a need for more community space and community meeting space. So the hope was that this could be a place that everyone would use and would feel open to the entire community and, and, um, and would just feel welcoming to everybody. And then um, the fourth, one of the, one of the reasons why it has resilience in the name is that it would be a crisis response space. So a flexible space that could be used in case of environmental crisis or other emergency situations. You know, we saw with the pandemic that suddenly we needed to create more shelter space because um, we needed to be able to spread people out and have some distance between people. So it would be another emergency shelter space, cooling or warming space, but a place that we could 
um, have some of our crisis emergency services if needed. So that was the the hope for this. It's a lot to jam into a building, um, but uh, we, that that's what we had been looking for and had you know looked at many different buildings. Um, this space that I've signed an option on, um, I think can do all of that. And I'm extremely excited and hopeful about it. It's, I think it can serve all of those purposes and do so in a really beautiful, inviting place that people want to use and that affirms a feeling of belonging and dignity and community for our entire community. So I'm very excited about it. Okay. For our listeners who missed the story, where is it? Where will it be? So the option that the city has signed is for the First Baptist Church, um, which is up on sort of Weston, Maine. Um, so it's a couple doors down from Forbes Library heading into downtown. So this is a space that has been empty for quite a long time. Um, so it's the event, the event space that, yes. uh, as Eric Shore told us, was going to be a club or a yes. night, a venue for acts never happened. It right, it's been empty. So it was first Baptist Church joined with First Churches in 1988. Um, this building was then sold to Mr. Sewer in 1993. So I'm sure we all have like our own context of what, <laughs> what how long ago 1993 was. Uh, it was five years ago, right? Yes, it was just you know yesterday. Um, for me, I was. In my first year at Smith College in 92-93. So um, <laughs> it feels like a really long time for me. I just had to go back and say 93-2003-13. Okay, it's a long time it's ago. It's a long time that ago. That building has been empty since then? It has been empty wow. since then. But work has gone on there for years on and off and different things have been done. And What kind of shape is the building in? It's actually, it, you know, so we're in our due diligence phase where we're going to kind of go in and really assess it. But um, from what we can tell in sort of preliminary looks by an architect, it's in really good condition. And the other thing that's really great is that a lot of the work that will further our needs has been done. So it is set to have a commercial kitchen put in. It's accessible. It has a, um, an elevator shaft, which is really important. Of course, this has to be an accessible space. So almost the entire building is accessible by elevator. Um, it is plumbed for laundry and showers and bathrooms and all the things that we need for the hub. And also was envisioned as a place for um, where you could have performances. So it, it, it would be a really good community space as well. Oh, Mayor, I'd like to know this. You've talked about the Resilience Hub as being a day, day center and a connection hub. Who is going to staff this? How will it work? Well, so we, uh, it was really exciting um, last week to get to meet with our lead uh, partner in this who, and sort of share our hopeful good news with them. And that lead partner is Community Action Pioneer Valley. Um, they're going to be the lead coordinating agency. So we got to meet with Claire Higgins, former mayor Claire Higgins, uh, executive director of Community Action Pioneer Valley, Galad Maron, who's the Community Resilience Hub, Hub coordinator for Community Action, um, and sort of share this news with them. They've been, you know, They've been eagerly awaiting a location um, and have been working with MANA to try and cobble together services in the meantime. But um, th so they will be the lead agency. And now we're in this sort of time where now that we have hopefully a space, we'll be working on conceptualizing the next steps with Community Action Pioneer Valley and engaging our community of 
agency partners to develop a structure for the space and, and for how the hub is going to be run. Let's talk about timing for a moment. Uh, the Resilience Hub will take, well, let me just ask, how long will it take to go through this process of due diligence for the city to evaluate the building and decide what uh, a fair price for it would be and to get it up and running? I'm hoping that this sort of next phase where we're assessing and then hopefully moving forward to closing on it will not take more than a few months. And then there is work that will need to be done to... Construction. Yes, right. So to finish the space and and have it you know, fit all the different purposes. One thing we haven't talked about yet is another thing um, that we think that this building can do is also house some of Health and Human Services or all of the Department of Health and Human Services. So the hope was to bring the department... The city's department. The city's department. Um, the hope was to bring the Department of Community Care into the Resilience Hub. But um, we actually think that we could bring maybe all of the department into this space. And um, so we need to make sure that it's going to fit for our department. But there's, you know, there's so much overlap there. And as we've moved from a health department to health and human services, um, you know, we, we think it would be a great thing to have that department in this building as well. And the alternative to policing, that would be part of what is in the resilience yes. hub. Yes. Yes, that is the vision, is that the Department of Community Care, which is an alternative res crisis response, um, would be in that building as well. Okay, take a quick break. We'll be back with the mayor of Northampton in just a minute. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. At PV Squared Solar, we live by our mission, energizing a brighter future for people and planet. This year, we are celebrating our 20th anniversary. 20 years of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar. 20 years of relationships founded on trust and clean energy. 20 years of powerful cooperation. Thank you for the partnerships along the way, and we look forward to serving this community for 20 years more. Happy birthday, PV Squared! Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Some people know how to prepare seafood. Seafood's delicate. You don't want a heavy hand. Some people have the touch. Some of those people are in the kitchen at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant, where there's a 40-year tradition of preparing seafood, wisdom passed along through the years. That's why when you have fish and chips at Paul and Elizabeth's, or Faroe Island salmon, or tempura shrimp with that light and lively orange ginger sauce, it's perfect every time. Fresh seafood, Paul and Elizabeth's, inside Thorns in downtown Northampton. Champagne, sparkling wine, cava, prosecco. If it's bubbly, it's really good. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. The three main grapes of champagne, if correct me if I'm wrong, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier, although there are a bunch of other ones that nobody really ever uses <laughs> hardly at all. That is 100% correct. A lot of the time they're made with Pinot Noir, which is a red grape, even though it doesn't look very red. Right. Juice is basically the same color, just like we are on the inside. Oh, I like that. No. Hold the cork, turn the bottle. Don't yes. hold the bottle, try to, to wiggle that cork out. Cava is a great value because they make it just the same way that they make champagne. The value's there. And it's from Spain. This is also a way to make something a special occasion, not just for a special occasion. There's something about champagne and sparkling wine in general that gives you that lift. It's like a fizzy lifting drink. Find your favorite wine and your next favorite wine at State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits. State Street, Northampton. 
Want to support the kind of talk you hear on the afternoon buzz? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, your message at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, your message at whmp.com, and add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with the mayor of Northampton, Jean-Louis Scherer. This is Mayor's Monday on WHMP. We have been talking about the Resilience Hub, which is now, well, close, pretty close to becoming a reality here in the city. It sounds really exciting in terms of putting together all of these services and having a central location. Uh, has there been any pushback that you've received? I know the announcements maybe be <laughs> Is relatively recent. I think Friday yes. was made. Um, so maybe not much over the weekend. But uh, do you expect this idea to be embraced community-wide? Or have you heard pushback already? I think large... I mean, I've been met with a lot of a, a lot of excitement. And, um, you know, obviously I got to see a lot of people yesterday at the Hot Chocolate Run. And people were generally really, really thrilled not only about hopefully having found a location, but about this reuse of this building, right, that's been empty for so long. Um, and, you know, th- we've had a lot of community discussions lately about reusing these sort of large historic buildings, particularly churches. Um, it's something that's sort of near and dear to my heart because I had worked at First Churches um, and worked on their capital campaign to be able to keep their building going. And, you know, these these are not always easy buildings to repurpose. So, um, I think people are really excited that this building could be used again after having been empty for so long. You know, there's always certain grumbling. I've seen some on Facebook about, um, you know, funding for things, using public money for things. Um, and so, there, you know, I've I've heard a little bit, but... Where gener- do, where's the money come from? Where, where, where's, where's the funding and how is the final price determined? So the, the money is coming from a few different places. One... Um, Mayor Narkowitz had designated that our cannabis mitigation funds um, would go to the Resilience Hub. So there's um, $1,600,000 of that that's been set aside for the Resilience Hub. Already? Already, yes. Um, There's also uh, federal funds, so federal community development block grant funds. Um, So that's a federal annual grants that the city gets based on a a formula, a federal formula. Um, So there's about a half a million dollars of um, CDBG funds. That will go to this. There, Smith College gave community a community block grant. Community N- not development. Not CBD funds. That's from <laughs> the other fund. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> community <laughs> development block grant funds, CDBG. Okay. Got it. Um, Smith College gave a very generous $200,000 gift for the Resilience Hub um, a couple years ago. So that will be going to this. We've also received other donations. And, you know, I will do a pitch that if people want to give to this this amazing project, they absolutely can go to the city's website and make a donation to the Resilience Hub. 
Um, so funds are coming from different places. I'll also be going to the council. Um, I think it will be uh, not this week, next Thursday, um, to uh, to talk about the balance of some funds to be able to from that are actually going to come from um, um, the ARPA American Rescue Plan Act funds. Um, we were able to take lost revenue funds out of ARPA. Um, and so some of these funds are going to come from there as well. Okay. And the final price for this, how's that determined? So that will be determined once we've gone through this due diligence phase and we um, figure it out. We will be able to come to a final final price and hopefully sign uh, sign that contract and close on it. And then there'll be a price determined for what the improvements need to be as and well. And then we'll need to move into that phase. Yes, absolutely. And you do is that that's those are those are city funds or those are also specially marked uh, contributions. You know, this is part of our conversation we're having with our partners on how we're going to build this out and and how we're going to fund that. Okay, we're going to leave it there. We have been speaking with the mayor of Northampton, Gina Louise Scherer, about the Resilience Hub. Congratulations on getting this project so close to the finish line. Thank you. Fingers crossed, everybody. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Everybody needs help sometimes. Seven out of ten Americans are one paycheck away from being homeless. In Massachusetts alone, there are ten new homeless families a day. One in four people will have a mental illness at some point in their life. A brain injury can change a person's life in an instant. ServiceNet helps more than 10,000 people each year. Every day, we help children with behavioral issues. We work with babies suffering from developmental delays. We shelter the homeless. We offer residential programs for people with severe mental illness, developmental disabilities, traumatic brain injuries, and substance addiction. And that's just the beginning of what we do. We are here when you need us. We have five outpatient counseling centers with convenient locations in Hampshire, Franklin, Hamden, and Berkshire counties. At ServiceNet, we believe that everybody has the ability to live a meaningful life, and we're here to help make that happen. For more information, please check our website at ServiceNet. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.